about so many of you showing up tonight. I said we was going to talk about drinking alcohol, and everybody came to church. Man. No, we are um, we're studying through a, um, a document that was uh, written in the late 1st century, early 2nd century, somewhere around in there. And it was a document that many of the early church fathers used to quote from and, and utilize, and it's a document that's called the Didache. And it's a, a church document that um, most scholars actually see that it predates the majority of the New Testament, uh, except for maybe the Gospel of Matthew and the, the book of James. We don't study this document as Holy Spirit-inspired scripture. We study this document because it's an interesting document because of the fact that the 2nd, 3rd, and 4th century church fathers, they all quoted this document as, as they understood it to be a faithful and true document. And so I felt like it was a very interesting document. Uh, it's not something that I would do on a Sunday morning. You know, I believe uh, my Sunday morning crowd is primarily for just feeding the flock. But I felt like it was a good study for a Wednesday night where we Bible study and where we study it. We reached a section of the Didache that uh, talks about appointing, it, it guides the church in appointing for themselves bishops and um, deacons. And we have learned that there are only two ordained offices in the New Testament church, and those offices are bishops and deacons. We also learned last week that bishops a lot of times is translated overseer, or sometimes it's translated as um, as uh, shepherding or pastoring, or however you have heard the term before. the The point is that a bishop or an overseer, their job is to oversee the spiritual growth of the church. Their job is to provide an example in their own life, and their job is to be able to teach so that they can help people grow in their knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and so that they can help people increase in righteousness in their life. And that's one of the things that we learned from the Didache is that two of the most important things for a born-again Christian is that they increase in their knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and thereby be able to increase in righteousness as they imitate the Lord Jesus Christ and all that they learn from Him, okay? And so, again, if you want to know more about that, go back to YouTube, to our um, uh, Facebook, or to our YouTube channel that our media team puts up, and you can search for last Wednesday night's, um, and I'm not even sure how to tell you how to find it, you, but you should be able to find it pretty easily if you go to our YouTube page, and you can go to last week, and you can actually see the introduction to this. Okay, so you could go to Facebook and just a few posts down, it'll it'll be there. Our last Wednesday night study, so you could find it there as well. But anyway, you could you could catch up on what a bishop is and what a deacon is and what their primary responsibilities were, and that's what we talked about last week. We look we started in First Timothy chapter three as we left the Didache just for a time to look at what the qualifications of bishops and deacons are, because again. In the Didache, it was guiding the church to appoint for themselves these two positions. And so in order to do that, we went to the Word of God to see what the Word of God actually teaches about the qualifications for these two roles after we had already examined what the two roles actually were and what their responsibilities were. So we are in the qualifications of the bishops or the overseers, and basically, in a quick summary, the bishops and the overseers, of course, take care of the spiritual oversight of the church. Their job is to make sure that they are teaching and training disciples in the Lord so that they are becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. They're increasing in righteousness. And it's important that in order to pastor or to shepherd, if you will, the flock of God, that is the way that we do it. We look for fruit in your life that says you are increasing in the knowledge of Jesus Christ and you are increasing in the way that you live like Jesus in this world. And so the 
position or the office of a deacon is also an overseeing in the church, but it is more toward any type of physical need of the congregation that would take the elders or the bishop away from being able to serve in their spiritual oversight. An example of that we looked at last week was in Acts chapter 6 to where a problem arose in the church and there were no deacons at this time and basically there was a, um, a group of widows that were being neglected in the daily distribution of their needs because the church was taking care of these widows. A certain group of them was being neglected the elders had to step away from studying the word and from prayer in order to deal with this need. And they saw that we need people in the church to be able to help take care of things like this when they arise so that the elders and the bishops can continue to stay in the word of God and teaching and preaching and praying. And so this is where the two roles work together so that the spiritual growth of the church continues to increase. Does everybody understand that? That's the quick summary of it. Again, go back last week and you will get the more detailed teaching on that. But we started in the qualifications of an elder that his job is to serve in spiritual oversight of the church, mainly by living his life as an example, as someone who is maturing in their knowledge of Christ and maturing in uh, the living in righteousness, and so they, you, that's one of the first things you ought to be able to see in this person's life. They can't serve in that oversight of the church if they're not doing it in their own lives first, amen? All right, so that's one of the first things, but in First Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, notice what he says here, this saying is trustworthy. In other words, this is truth. You can take this to the bank. This saying is trustworthy, and here's the saying. If anyone aspires to the office of an overseer, he desires a noble task. So there again, I taught you last week that the first thing about a, um, a, an elder or first qualification about a bishop is that there is a desire in them to serve in the spiritual oversight of the church. You shouldn't have to go to a future elder and ask them if they want to serve as an elder and them say, well, if you can't find anybody else. No, there ought to be a desire in someone to, to shepherd God's flock, to see that this is God's church, this is Christ's bride, and I am able to teach and I am able to live my life in such a way that I can serve in this area. And so if they desire this, that's the first qualification, but it's not the last and only qualification. Just because somebody desires it does not mean that they are the one for the job. But it is the first qualification. And if they desire this, and if, if they aspire to this role, it says they desire a noble task. And we said last week that that noble really means a very high calling. It is a word to, to describe royalty. And so it is a very high standard and a very high calling. And because this is such a high calling, then it requires high qualifications, right? And it should. We should be able to look among our people and to be able to look for elders in, for the church that we can say that, okay, these are people that we see them increasing in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. They are increasing in righteousness and the way that they live. And we can see that they are maturing to a place that they are able to help others in the church to be able to increase in their knowledge and in their righteousness as well. It is a high calling. And in order to do that, he needs to have a certain um, qualification or certain characteristics about him to be able to accomplish this goal. The first one we looked at was that an overseer or a bishop here or an elder, however your translates it, that he must be above reproach. Now some versions translate this blameless, but we also said last week that we know that it can't mean sinless because we looked back in other scriptures and saw to where they said elders who are actually persisting in sin your job is to, as other elders, is to address them and to deal with them and to, and to work with them through this. And so 
we know that there is no such thing as a sinless person, right? Now, I look forward to that day. Can anybody amen that? I can't wait for the day that I don't fight with sin anymore. I can't wait for the day that I don't deal with temptation anymore and all that is gone. I can't wait for the day that my mind and my heart are made so much like the Lord Jesus Christ that I can't be tempted and I can't fall to sin. But unfortunately, I'm not there. I'm not there. But I have reached the place in my walk that I'm not as likely to fall to certain temptations as some younger Christians would be. I have reached a place in my walk to where I have matured to a place to where I don't fight with the same kind of struggles and I don't deal with the same things that I used to when I were younger in the faith. But I want you to understand that what we're looking at here when we go through these is what this can't mean. It can't mean without sin. So we looked at what it does mean and we looked at various scriptures and in summary we found out that this simply means that they need to be somebody that it's hard to find things to just point out in their life to say, this is where they sin, and this is where they sin, and look at this in his life, and look at this in his life. No, they need to be above that. They need to be above reproach. It needs to be somebody that, for the most part, you'd have to look pretty deep to be able to find some type of significant sin that stands out in their life. And this is what we're looking for, somebody that's above reproach, all right? The next thing we saw is the husband of one wife. And again, I'm only going to summarize this. I can't spend a whole nother, nother week on this. And so if you want to know more about this, go back and look at my scriptural support from last week. But what does this not mean? It is not a blanket statement for divorce. I know, I know this is what the Baptist churches have always taught. You've been raised in it. You've been trained in it. Again, go back last week and listen to my message. I want you to understand, this is not a blanket statement for divorce. We want to look at a man, and if he has divorce, period, we don't look at the circumstances. We don't look, does he have a biblical divorce? We don't look at, is this divorce prior to his salvation? That would be important. Paul was a murderer before he was saved. Amen? So here's the thing we have to understand. That yes, can a divorce disqualify a person? Absolutely. If he proves that he, as a Christian, he's not been able to take care of his own wife and been mature enough in the faith to withstand temptations and things like that, and it proves that he is, if he can't take care of his own one woman and he's not faithful to one woman in his own life as a Christian, then guess what? You think Jesus wants him taking care of his bride? No. And so absolutely a divorce could disqualify a man of God from being a pastor, but not in every case. And so it is very important that you understand the Bible teaches there are biblical divorces. The Bible teaches that there are divorces and there are sins that take place in elders and bishops' lives that precede their salvation. And so that's important to be able to look at too. So what we found out is that basically this in the Greek translates as a one-woman man. It's a man that proves that he has been, and again, I'll say this just as a summary. It also can't just mean polygamy. You know why? We went back to Ephesians and saw that polygamy was a sin to be addressed in all the church, not just elders. It was a sin to be addressed for the, the newest of Christians. And so we have to understand that it's also not a blanket statement for polygamy. And so we have to see here that there are reasons for a, a, a man to be able to have divorce in his life but not necessarily be disqualified. And there are reasons that he can and be disqualified. There, there are definitely, when we look at polygamous and when we look at Jesus' definition of what a true marriage is, one man, one woman, together, uh, God takes two and he makes them one until death do they part, then we understand that, yes, this is God's design for marriage and anything outside of that is sin. And so we see here that this is about a man that proves that since he has been a Christian 
and he has matured in his faith that he proves that he's able to take care and be devoted to one woman the same way that Jesus Christ would ask him to do with his own bride. And so when you see that, then you can see that you have a qualified man to take care of the bride of Christ. The next thing that we see in this that we get to tonight is sober-minded. Now again, it's important to understand, this does not mean that he cannot drink at all. Now let me tell you, I don't drink, okay? So this is not me teaching this to try to justify any type of drinking in my own life. I don't care anything about drinking. I gave that stuff up 20-something years ago, and I, I don't care anything about it whatsoever, all right? But I also want to be biblical, and I want to be able to point out to you, and I'm going to show you from many scriptures tonight that the Bible does not condemn drinking alcohol as a sin in every context. Let me show you why it can't mean that. In 1 Timothy 3, he's talking about elders here and the qualifications, right? Well, let me show you the elder of Ephesus and what Paul says to him in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 23. Just flip a couple pages over in your Bible and look at what Paul says to the elder of this church. Now, just so you know that we're talking about elders here, look at verse 17 first. Verse 17, who's he talking to? Elders, right? Now go down to where he's talking to the elder of Ephesus here. And in verse 23, look what he tells him. No longer drink only water, but use what? A little wine for what? For the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Can I also tell you that most scholars believe that what Timothy was actually dealing with was anxiety? Timothy was a very young pastor. And as a result of that, Paul was also always telling him, don't let anybody despise your youth. Make sure you preach the word and you preach it boldly. And he's always having to deal with Timothy about his timidness. And so it's very important that we understand that it's likely that's where he was dealing with. And Paul is actually, as a doctor, prescribing an elder of the church to do what? To drink wine. For your little one, we're gonna get there in a minute. Hold on, I know, I know, we're gonna have some struggles with this tonight, but just stay with me, all right? And so that's just one thing. Now go with me to John chapter two, or don't you don't even have to go there. You'll know this story very well. What did Jesus do with water at the wedding? And a lot of people say, yeah, but it probably wasn't alcoholic because Jesus wouldn't do that. Go back and read that scripture again when it says, and when they were well drunken. I want you to understand that the Bible actually teaches that. Do you not understand that God is the one that planted the first vineyard? God is the one that made the first grape. Did you not think that God did not know that men were going to crush him and ferment it and that it was going to, I mean, come on. All right, now let me show you another scripture. Go with me to Psalm chapter 104, verse 15. This is going to blow your mind. Psalm 104, verse 15. And actually, we'll start in verse 14 so that you know that what, what the psalmist is doing here is giving credit where credit is due to God alone for the good things that he has given me. Okay? Well, let's see what this psalmist has to say about the good things. And you do understand that the psalms are Holy Spirit inspired too, right? Okay, just making sure. 14. You cause the grass to grow for livestock, and you cause plants to grow for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth, and what? Wine to do what? Gladden the heart of man. So here's the thing. God actually made wine for celebration. He really did. That's the reason why they used wine at wedding feasts and things like this, all right? The problem is this. You and I are sinners. And we take the good things that God made and we turn these things into sin and we, we become sinful with the good things 
that God has made, okay? And so this is another thing to understand. But again, my point is this. I want us to quit being people that every time you look at somebody sitting down at a table with a glass of wine, we think, oh, my goodness, what in the world are those great sinners doing? I want you to understand that the Bible does not condemn drinking alcohol. The Bible condemns drinking alcohol in excess because of what it does to you. Listen, if you could drink alcohol in excess without being a sinner, that would be a great time. The problem that you're going to learn is when you read through the dangers of drinking in the Bible, and there are many dangers in it, many warnings against it, because it leads us to do things and speak things. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Go with me to Proverbs chapter 23. This is just one of many, all right? Proverbs chapter 23. start in verse 30. Actually, let's start in verse 29. Because this is important for context. Who has woe? And who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? And what's the answer in verse 30? Those who tarry long. Over, not those who drink a glass of wine. Those who tarry long over wine, you're going to find trouble. You're going to find sorrow. You're going to find wounds. You're going to find sadness. Let's see what else it says about it in verse 31. And, and then in verse 30. And those who go to try mixed wine. In other words, you, you're going after that strong drink. All right? Now let's go down to verse 31. Do not look at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, and when it goes down smoothly. Why? Verse 32. Because in the end, it does what? It bites like a serpent, and it stings like an adder. And then notice what it does to you in verse 33. Your eyes will see what? Strange things. like y'all know what I'm talking about. I don't know how I feel about this right now. The second part of verse 33. Not only that, but here's what sitting long at wine does to you. It causes your heart to utter perverse things. In other words, it causes you, because you're sinful, now if you weren't sinful, you wouldn't, you, if you weren't sinful, your eyes probably wouldn't see strange things. If you weren't sinful, your heart wouldn't utter perverse things. But because you have a sinful heart, what wine does is it starts drawing out all these sinful things that are in you, and they start coming out. And so this is the reason why God made wine to gladden the heart of man. God made wine to be something that we celebrate and that we enjoy. But the fact that we are sinners, it leads to things in us if we sit long at it, that are not good. And so I want you to be able to see that what the Bible teaches, and we could go on because there's a sermon right there in the things that wine does to you, okay? So we could go on, but here's the point. The Bible teaches, and do you want to know what the Bible teaches or do you just want to know what you think you believe? The Bible teaches that wine in and of itself is not wrong, and it's not bad. It's what you and I as sinners do with it. Now, for me personally, I've seen what it does in my life. I've seen what it did in my, in, in my dad's life. I've seen, I've seen exactly where it leads, and I've seen that for me personally, I just don't even sit down and order a glass of wine because I don't have the habit. It's not something... Now, listen, if I could know 
that I could do this maybe even at a wedding and I could celebrate something and I knew that I could do this and I knew that it's not going to cause perverse things to come out and I knew that it's not going to cause my eyes to see strange things and if I knew that I could do that then yeah, you know what, it may be difficult but for me personally it's just been something that I have learned that for my walk with Christ it's just better for me to stay away from it. I can drink a Coke. <laughs> I can drink I can drink water. I can drink. Now, you know, another thing is back in biblical days, this was a typical drink for them. Because again, they didn't have other options and, and cleanliness of water and things. And so this was a, a very common option for them to be able to do. This is actually very likely what they used at the Lord's Supper. And so I'm not telling you that as a church that we have to partake of wine at the Lord's Supper. No, the Bible calls it the fruit of the vine. It don't have to be fermented. But I want you to understand that it's very likely that it was when they did it. And so I want you to know that as Christians, you need to understand that, again, drinking alcohol in and of itself is not sinful. But there are dangers of it. And there are many warnings in the Word of God that advise us to be very careful with it. And so it might be very well appropriate for you to go to a wedding and to celebrate with somebody and give a toast with a glass of champagne or a glass of wine. Uh, it, it may be very, very proper for you to, to sit down at a, at a gathering if it's not going to cause your brother to stumble and that we're getting into, you know that. Now again, because of where we are today, and we know that anything that leads our uh, weaker brothers and sisters to stumble, then then it's not something we should go and sit down at a restaurant. If if today's uh, church member comes in and they see me sitting down in Legends over here with a Bud Light, or no, I ain't gonna be drinking that. Um, with a uh, with something else, <laughs> with something else. And the, today's regular church member comes in. I didn't mean to offend any of y'all drink Bud Light, by the way. <laughs> but anyway, if a regular church member comes in, and I'm sitting there at the table with a Bud Light, then typically because of today's understanding, especially in the, uh, the, the younger, uh, less mature Christians, I guess I should say, then it would likely cause some stumbling. And then, of course, then it would be sinful for me to be drinking that because it caused my brother to stumble. And we get that from Romans chapter 14. He actually tells us, I don't remember exactly which verse, somewhere in the first few verses, but he says, um, it's better to not eat meat or drink wine if it causes my brother to stumble. In other words, I don't have to have these things, and if I believe that it's possible that I could cause my brother to stumble, then it's just better for me to be able to stay away from it. So again, I want to be very careful that what I'm teaching you tonight is when you look at a qualification even for an elder, he's not saying that he's some great sinner if he has an occasional drink. And you're going to see, let me show you another scripture. Go back to 1 Timothy chapter 3 again. And look what he says at the beginning of verse 3. Somebody read it for me. The very first three words of, um, of verse 3 of 1 Timothy chapter 3. Not given to wine. Somebody else give me another translation. Not a drunkard. Not a drunkard. In other words, he's not, he's not, and when we translate not given to wine, it literally means not overindulgent. That's what it means. So here in the very qualification, he says it's somebody that doesn't overindulge in these. So Again, I'm not trying to teach it this way to justify myself because I don't have to. I don't drink. So I don't have to justify that. But I'm trying to teach you from the scriptures that it is not some great sinful thing to consume alcohol, but it is sinful to overindulge because of what it does to you as a sinner. Does everybody understand that? And so this is part of what we're dealing with in these qualifications is it's somebody that has control over their, their sinfulness to a, to a large degree. Again, nobody has complete control over their, all their sinfulness. But you need to have reached a place in your spiritual walk and in your increasing in righteousness that 
you don't overindulge in things like this. You understand where it leads to. You know the warnings of it. And because of that, you either choose to just stay away from it or you understand that you can't, you are at a place that you can be self-controlled in this. So again, I'm, I, I want to be very careful teaching this because my advice would be for a Christian to not become a, a daily drinker, to just not become somebody that, now again, I don't think it's anything wrong and anything sinful for you to occasionally for celebratory reasons or whatever the case may be, or even uh, uh, you sit down with your, your spouse and you, uh, you're having a, a steak and you uh, celebrate an anniversary or something. You know, I mean, there, are, there may be a time for you to be able to, to do that and it not be sinful at all. But I also want you to understand that if you take this teaching tonight and you turn this into it's okay for me to drink, be warned. Be warned. There, there are many, many dangers in that. I didn't even take you through half the scriptures. Let me read you, let me read just a few of them to you. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 1. Wine is a mocker. Strong drink is a brawler. In other words, wine will make you mock somebody. Strong drink will make you want to fight, right? Are, are either one of those qualities of somebody that's increasing in righteousness? Not at all. And whoever is led astray by wine is not wise. Ezekiel chapter uh, 44 verse 21 you could look at. No priest shall drink wine when he enters the inner court. Well, there again, outer court. Have you drink, I guess, I don't know. But no priest shall drink wine when he enters the inner court. Why? Because his job was to go in to the presence of God on behalf of the people. His job was to teach the people between right and wrong. And so when you go back to other books, I think it's in Exodus, he actually tells, or Numbers maybe it was, he actually tells them that the priest, when they're doing their duty, should not let wine touch their lips because they have to be able to determine between right and wrong. And they have to be able to, to minister between the people and God. And so in order to do that, he can't do that if he's, if he's buzzing. That sounds crazy. But anyway, Romans, uh, uh, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, do not get drunk with wine, but be filled with what? The Holy Spirit. And so how do you get drunk with wine? drink lots of it, right? How do you get filled with the Spirit? Same way. That's the analogy there, right? So on the one hand, if you drink a lot of wine, you're going to get drunk. On the other hand, if you drink a lot from the Spirit, guess what? You're going to get filled up with Him too. And so there, that's what He advises for a Christian to do. Don't be somebody that fills up on things that are going to make you ungodly. Be somebody that fills up on things that are going to increase you in righteousness. And again, I could go on and on. Hosea 4.11, beware of wine and new wine which take away the understanding. Um, Proverbs 31, 4-5, it is not for kings, O Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to take a strong drink lest they drink and forget what has been decreed and pervert the rights of the afflicted. So again, it's all about what you as a sinner do once it takes you away from your soberness. You see what I'm saying? And so we are to be sober-minded, but that does not mean that they don't have a drink at all, all right? Everybody understand where I'm coming from? where you see some of your temptation and some of your sinfulness beginning to creep in and you get out instead of using it just simply for what God designed it to do. Yeah. 
All right. <clears throat> Any other questions on sober-minded? Any comments? Any disagreements? I welcome those too. That's right. And I just want to say, that, that is a good good mindset to have. But I'm also not going to say that if, um, if somebody did, that, again, that they're biblically wrong. Um, so that's what I want to be able to do. Here, here's what I want to be careful of. I want to be careful that I speak where the Bible speaks. And I'm silent where the Bible is silent. And so that's the, that's the important thing to understand here is that is that this is what the Bible teaches on both sides of this of this teaching, of this lesson. And it's very important that this is not an excuse for you to become a drunkard. No, as a matter of fact, let me give you a very important warning. The Bible tells us in Ephesians, I think it's chapter 5, and there are several other scriptures, that no drunkard will inherit the kingdom of heaven. And he said, such were some of you, but you were washed. You, you have been forgiven and you have repented of that drunkenness and now you are following the Lord Jesus Christ. And so somebody that is just looking for an excuse to become a drunkard, your problem ain't this teaching. Your problem is you need to be saved. That's the truth of it. That's right. That's right. That's right. 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 So, like I said, that's that's what the Bible teaches on that qualification of sober-minded. And it's the same way as the priest. If uh, the priest's responsibility was to make sure that they stayed sober-minded so that they could lead the people, so they could teach the people right from wrong, then the same thing would apply to elders and overseers of the church today, right? It's very important that I'm keeping myself in a place of sober-mindedness so that I'm always able to teach and to, and to lead and to help people increase in righteousness, and I can also make sure that I'm doing that in my own life. All right? So that's the, that's the sober-minded qualification there. The next thing is that he has to be self-controlled, or some versions say uh, temperate. And so basically here we just we go into... The, a lot of these are connected like links in a chain. But this one right here would be somebody that is able to control his own desires, somebody that's able to control his own emotions. And you know, I'm sure that some of you may be still dealing with this a lot, but as a young Christian, um, you, you struggle to, to control some of those old sinful desires that you're trying to repent from. You know, as a young Christian, you struggle to control anger and emotions that something gets to you and you just you pop off real real fast and so as a young Christian you have to learn and grow into somebody that is temperate and somebody that is able to be self-controlled in their desires and their emotions and so whenever we look for somebody in a in an elder we're looking for somebody that has reached a place in their spiritual walk that they are temperate in 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 the um, emotions and in anything else that they deal with in their life. They are self-controlled in these matters because, again, it proves that they have learned and they have grown in following the things of the Lord and not letting the things of the world and sinful things uh, just make them follow whatever emotion they're feeling at the time. And so that's something else. So basically what you're looking at is somebody that is disciplined in their mind. And because they're disciplined in their mind, their life is disciplined. And so that's, that's what you're looking for in, in a qualification there. 
The next thing he says here is that they need to be respectable. In other words, and this is something that when you go back and you look at it from the Greek, it was the way that um, everybody saw them, not just the church, but the way that the people in the church saw them and even the way the people in the world saw them. They saw, let me give you an example of that, and this is by no means a prideful statement, all right? I don't mean this to, to build myself up at all, but I want to give you an example. I work with two other Christian men. Love them both dearly. One of those men, um, the boys down the street, a lot of those, they, they um, if they are Christians, the fruit is lacking. That's all I'm going to say, all right? But they will come up to our plant sometimes and they will cut up with, the, with one of my employees, one of our workers, and they will, I mean, they, they, they'll just get plumb wrong. And, I mean, it's, it's not a healthy thing. And they'll get on him and they, uh, they, they know how to work him. And they've been doing this now for 10, 15 years, I guess. You know, they have never once done that with me. Not a single time. Matter of fact, I've been in there the same amount of time that he's been with me. But they have never once come up there and they have not even one time ever came up there and, and, and tried to uh, poke at me or tried to get anything. They have always treated me with the utmost respect. And the reason I believe, now I'd have to ask them why. Why do you do this to such a, I, I don't know. But I believe and I want to be able to say that they, they, they don't see those kind of things out of me. They don't see those kind of things. That they don't hear the talk come out of my mouth. They don't hear the words come out of my mouth. Most of them don't even really cuss around me. But I know they cuss like sailors everywhere else. And so what does that say? That says to me that apparently they see me as a respectable person. They see that that's just things that I don't do. And because of that, uh, they... they, they they show respect toward me. And this is an example I believe that we need to be able to see is that not only do the people in the church respect this person and see that this is a self-controlled, godly person that has matured in his walk and he shows that he's serious about his faith, but they, the people outside also are able to see that. Now again, that's not always been true about me, but it's been true for so many years now that even the people that I used to run with years ago see that in me now. And they, they are able to respect me even though years ago we did everything together. But today they see that there is, that, that there is a seriousness about the life that I live and about the faith that I proclaim. And so I believe that's one of the things that they're trying to get across is this person has been living self-controlled in, in such a way, sober-minded in such a way, he's above reproach, and he's been that way for such a length of time that he has become respectable, not only in the congregation, but also to the people that are outside and to the people that are not necessarily part of the church. Does that make sense? So that's another qualification that you're looking for. Another thing here is uh, hospitable. And basically this is translated from the Greek to love strangers. This is somebody that shows a love towards strangers, a love toward people that he doesn't even know. Why? Because, again, that's a fruit of a Christian person. That's a fruit of somebody that he, he isn't always trying to find a reason to be mad at somebody or always point out a flaw in somebody. He's, he, he's a person that, as much as is possible with him, he just loves others, and especially in the way that he treats strangers in this. And, you know, you could look at scriptures like Romans chapter 12, verse 13, or Hebrews chapter 13, verse 2, or 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 9. Those are just a few scriptures that show us that hospitality was a very important fruit of a Christian in this day and time. It's not as a, um, I'm not going to say it's not as important. You don't see it as much today. And the reason I say that is because in this day and time, 
you had travelers that were coming all the time that basically there were dangers out there on the road everywhere and there were dangers of staying in the inns and in the hotels and it was not a it was important that Christian people were people that opened their homes to especially other Christians that were coming through and so it's very important that hospitality was seen in an overseer during this time but I would still say today that it still applies that there were to be Something in me that you see that I show love toward all people, even strangers. If I, if I only love those who love me back, am I any different than the rest of the world? No. But if I love those who don't love me, guess what? That's a fruit of somebody that is actually maturing in their faith, somebody that's actually growing in faith. So hospitable is, is another one. And then I'll stop with these two right here. The next one is able to teach. Now, why would that be important for an overseer? That's right. I need to be able, I need to have increased in my knowledge of Christ to such a, to such a degree that I'm able to help you increase in your knowledge. If I'm not able to teach, and I'm not able to help you increase in your knowledge, I can't serve in the spiritual oversight of the flock of God growing in righteousness. And so it's very important that you're able to see that this person is increasing in their knowledge to such a place that they can help others increase in their knowledge. And so that's another qualification that we have there. And then the last one I'll get to tonight, I'm going to stop with this one, is not a drunkard. And there again, that just backs up the whole sober-mindedness. He's understanding that he is self-controlled, and all these things are like a chain that is linked together, and they all connect with one another. And you're looking for a, a person that has reached such a place in their spiritual walk that they are able to help others come up to that place he's reached. I know many of you in here have heard me say so many times, if I ever feel like or if you ever feel like that you have reached where I am in your knowledge, the truth of the matter is there's probably not much more I can do for you. I am the top on this pot, if you will. And if you ever boil up to the point that you're coming out of that top, the truth of the matter is then it's probably time for another pastor to come in or it's time for you to go pastor somewhere else. I don't know. But still, you see what I'm saying is that we have to be able to, I'm sorry, Miss Austin, I didn't mean to hurt you. <laughs> but um, see, I laughed so much at you, I don't even know what I was saying there. <laughs> there you go. What'd you say? Other one. That's right. You're always training up, you're making disciples, and you're trying to teach and train people in such a way that they are increasing in righteousness. And hopefully one day they do reach the point from where you're at. And, and, and ultimately, if they aspire to this role, then, or maybe they don't aspire to the role of an elder, but they should be able to get to a place to where they're able to teach others, other people. And so just because you're not an elder, a teacher don't necessarily mean you have to be an elder. But if you have increased in righteousness and increased in knowledge of Christ to the point that you are able to help others increase in their righteousness, then you can operate in the role as teacher or you may be able to operate in the role as elder. Right. That's right. That's exactly right. And that's the reason why I've always said so many times, it's important for me and for you that I continue to keep growing, that I continue to keep learning. My, my job of learning and being able to teach you never stops until the day God calls me home, and I know all things except what he said to me. <laughs> all right. So that's what you have tonight. Um, again, I did not tell you to go home and buy a bottle of wine or whatever the case may be, all right? But I do hope that you understand what the Bible teaches about that tonight. And I hope that you are able to be mature enough to use wisdom to figure out how that best applies in your life so that you continue to increase in righteousness 
and help others increase the righteousness of faith. Any questions? going to go home by a case, wouldn't you? <laughs> All right. Well, thank y'all so much for your time and your attention, and uh, Lord willing, uh, I don't even know what to tell you to make you all come back next week, but <clears throat> hope to see you all come back next week, and we'll finish this out. Yes, sir. Ah, oh, business meeting is next week. Okay. Right. Yeah, y'all won't be back. <laughs> Somebody, they bring some wine. <laughs> All right. God bless you. I love you. And uh, let's pray and you'll be dismissed. Father, we thank you tonight for your word. And Father, we just want to be true to you. Father, we want to be honoring to you. We want to live lives that, that glorify you. And Father, I pray, God, that you would help us to, uh, to be able to understand that there are things in this life that you have given us to enjoy and for a, a good purpose. But also understand that our sinfulness, Father, is, uh, Lord, it's just our flesh is so powerful, Father. I just pray, God, that you would help us to, to grow, to overcome that, to be self-controlled, to be people that, uh, Father, we're increasing in our knowledge of you, we're increasing in our righteousness, and, Father, we're just becoming more like your son. Father, I just thank you so much for teaching us, for uh, leading us in, in the way. And Father, I just pray, God, that you would help us to apply it to our life. Father, I pray, God, that uh, as we see these qualifications and leaders, Father, I pray, God, that first and foremost that, that you're able to see them as leaders. Father, I pray, God, that, Father, anywhere that I fall short, that, God, you would convict me. Father, that you would, uh, Lord, lead me to repentance, Father. Lord, I pray, God, that you would help us as we continue to search for someone that would fill this role. Father, I pray, God, that you would help us to understand these qualifications and that, that, Father, we would look for the person that uh, could best help your bride, your church, to increase in their knowledge and increase in their righteousness as well. Father, we just ask you for your guidance, Father. I know that if you lead us, we can't go wrong. Father, we love you. We praise you. Lord, keep us safe as we go back home. And if it's your will, Father, bring us back together Sunday morning again. And if not, Lord, bring us all home together. Father, I ask you to do this.